On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett, chatting all things cardiovascular disease. The way I look at this is that the the two statistics that everyone should really be aware of is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally and in most developed nations, but it's also the most preventable. 90% of it can be prevented at an early stage if you just follow the right steps and formula. So I look at it as a, a scary opportunity. As ever available on all podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. It was 25 years ago this week when news broke of the Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal. In this episode of the Indo-Daily recorded last year, Fiona Sheehan and guests take us back through the details of that scandal. Today on the Indo-Daily, sex, shame and salvation. How Monica Lewinsky took back control. At the age of 22, I fell in love with my boss. And at the age of 24... I learned the devastating consequences. So Monica, she actually took to Twitter recently to talk about the most terrifying day of her life. And what she was referring to was January 16th, 1998. And that was the day she went to meet an older colleague, Linda Tripp, for lunch in the Pentagon City Mall in Washington. So like me at 22, a few of you may have also taken wrong turns and fallen in love with the wrong person maybe even your boss. Unlike me, though, your boss probably wasn't the president of the United States of America. When she got there, she she sat down to, to meet Linda Tripp, but she was suddenly ambushed by FBI agents, and she soon discovered that the lunch was actually a carefully orchestrated sting operation. So she was then taken to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, and there was more FBI agents waiting for her there. Um, She was questioned for the next 11 hours. She did get a couple of breaks. Um, She was threatened with 27 years in jail. And she got to make a phone call. She called her her mother, who travelled from New York by train. Um, Ken Starr later wrote in his memoirs that the operation was dubbed Prom Night by FBI agents. And he said, for an hour, Monica screamed, she cried, she pouted and complained bitterly about her scheming no-good so-called friend. I was branded as a tramp, tart, slut, whore, bimbo, and of course, that woman. That was Katie Byrne, writer with the Irish Independent, talking about a critical point in the Monica Lewinsky affair. I'm Fiona Sheen, and you're listening to the Indo Daily. Today I talked to Katie about Monica Lewinsky's reinvention after the scandal. But first, Larry Donnelly, NUI Galway law lecturer and author of The Bostonian, The Life of an Irish-American Political Family. Larry Donnelly, can you give us a brief part of the history of the Monica Lewinsky affair, which is a very, very convoluted episode entirely in American history? 
Yes, Fiona, and I'll try to do so as quickly as possible. Uh, to do so, I have to proceed on two tracks. Uh, one is that in 1994, a woman named Paula Jones filed a lawsuit against Bill Clinton uh, on the basis that she had been sexually harassed by him while he was governor of Arkansas. In the course of that litigation, uh, the, the her, her lawyers decided to pursue uh, behaviors in this area that Clinton had been known for and came upon uh, through a woman named Linda Tripp, who was friendly with Monica Lewinsky, um, the revelations that uh, or the accusations that he had had an illicit relationship with her. And the Paula Jones uh, lawsuit on, brought to earth, brought to light some of that. Uh, and Bill Clinton was deposed. Uh, in that lawsuit and contended that he did not have sexual relations uh, with Monica Lewinsky. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. The other track here is that uh, an independent counsel, a guy named Ken Starr, was appointed uh, to look into all sorts of dealings of Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, going all the way back to Arkansas. But in terms of this incident, he also took into account what was happening with Monica Lewinsky. Again, Linda Tripp, a friend of Monica Lewinsky, who basically told uh, investigators what had been going on, what Monica Lewinsky had told her. Uh, all of that culminated in the release of the Star Report, which found um, that Bill Clinton had committed perjury in the context of the Paula Jones lawsuit when he said he did not have sexual relations with uh, Monica Lewinsky, and also that he had obstructed uh, justice in the sense that he tried to control Lewinsky's testimony and the testimony uh, of others with salient information to events. With the publication of the Star Report, that gave the Republicans who had all the uh, the solid majorities of both the House and the Senate at the time the fuel they needed to file for impeachment. Uh, and he was convicted. He was impeached by the House of Representatives uh, by a wide margin um, in 1998. And then he was tried uh, for he was tried to be removed from office. Uh, in January of 1999, uh, on the basis again of, of of perjury and obstruction of justice, that did not fit, that did not meet the required two thirds majority, uh, and he survived uh, the scandal, as it were. As you no doubt heard, you get to work in the West Wing as of this morning. So, Katie Byrne, how was she portrayed at at the time? Do you think it's it's? I mean, and that's a very wide open question because she seemed to be the the, the subject of dramatic ridicule. She was the Scarlet Woman, a very uh, poorly portrayed right across the, the the American media from from the the comedians to the to the news. Uh, so what what was it like at the time? At the time, it was. I mean, it was it was relentless bullying. I think plain and simple, she was, I mean, it was, it was schoolyard bullying um, across the board all the way to, to, like you were saying, to the talk show hosts. Monica also said that uh, President Clinton would often compliment her on her figure. He would say things like, oh, you look skinny today. <laughs> you know, if you didn't think this guy was the biggest liar in the world before. I'm sorry. There was a sense, in one sense, she was portrayed as this arch seductress, so kind of canny and um, and manipulative. And in another sense, people tried to make her seem very silly and naive. So I, I think that was the two main portrayals of her. Um, but ultimately, a punchline. 
<laughs> well, over on CBS, Shania Twain had her big musical special. I felt sorry for Shania. <laughs> See, that brings up the age-old question for guys. Who do you watch? The nice girl? The pretty girl you can take home to mom? Or the cheap, slender girl you know puts out? Everybody goes for Monica! <laughs> she likened herself um, recently enough. She said she was the patient zero of public shaming. And I think that's that's fairly spot on. And it was an era before social media. So it, it's 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 almost hard for us to, to grasp that. I can't imagine what it would have been like now. But it was a, it was it, this was mainstream media. This wasn't any online anonymous trolls. And also this is before the term slut shaming had entered the vernacular. So we didn't even have the architecture of mind to understand what it was that we were doing, which is, and also it was a time when the woman was always blamed in any sort of, you know, marital breakdown and, and all the rest of it. So yeah, dark times. What impact did it have on her at the time? She, she, has, she has spoken about just being directly suicidal. That, yeah. that she felt the only way to, that this could all come to an end was if she killed herself. Mm, yeah, um, it, it was that dark for her. And then she she also spoke about there was a good 10 years when she was borderline reclusive. I think she tried um, she tried to get jobs within the kind of comms um, charity sector and, and was constantly turned down, just explained that she wasn't quite right for the role. And then that led her to doing the more kind of, you know, media focused stuff. She tried those little stint in reality TV. She... Um, she was a spokesperson for a weight loss company. Um, there was a handbag line that was actually her first outing. So she, I, I think in that situation, when you can't get a straight job, mm-hmm. you're kind of forced into, the, into those type of roles, which I think just compounded this idea of her as this, like I said, like a punchline. The, the turning point, what, what, would, what would you say, was it a, was it a, a, a national movement or was it an individual act that that she undertook herself to to begin to both get people to acknowledge the way she was treated and also change their perception of her? Mm. I would say the behind the doors turning point for her at a personal level was going to the London School of Economics and 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 doing you know doing her masters there. I'd say that gave her a lot of time to think and and you know kind of helped her construct her thoughts and all the rest of it because just shortly after that, she did that um, that famous essay for Vanity Fair on the culture of humiliation. And I think that was absolutely the turning point. It was like a 4,000 word essay. I think it's an exceptional piece of writing. And it was it was also so prescient because that essay came out, it w- possibly it was about a year or, or, or maybe 10 months before John Ronson's book, you, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. So she was so ahead of the curve and I think once that came out, there was we started to actually discuss the impact of public shaming, of trolling, of online bullying. Um, and then she closed, she followed that up with that TED talk. She got a standing ovation for that TED talk she did. Um, and again, that was also on the subject of shame. And shortly after Brené Brown did that famous TED talk on shame. So again, she was just, you know, she sniffed the wind. Um, and I think she's continuously done that now over the last, you know, over the last eight years or so. She's just, she's constantly on the money. And she's proved herself to be a very, a frontier thinker, actually.
all of the the things that we that we now regard as 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 no go areas, abuse of power, othering. She was that woman, mm. trolling, bullying, loss of agency, public shaming, slut shaming. She suffered all of them, really. Mm. Do you think mm-hmm. that? Did did Me Too, that movement, change anything for her in that regard? Or do you think it was already going in that direction for her? I think it was going in that direction, but it gave her it gave her a kind of a place. It, it opened her up to explore what had actually her experience and look at it from the point of view that while she had agency, um, there was also a sense of her being a victim there because there was a 27-year age difference. So she looked at it from the point of view of power dynamics when you have um, a wealthy, um, privileged, powerful older man and a, and a much younger woman. You know, what's actually, what's going on in that dynamic? And, and does, a, does a woman in that situation have complete agencies? I think it definitely, the conversation had opened up um, and more people were talking about situations that, that, that more women were talking about situations like that, that they'd been in. So I think that, yeah, it certainly opened it up for, for conversation. So she's now very much shaping the narrative. She is a, she's a producer uh, on on Im- impeachment. She's also said that she has ensured that some of the, the kind of the the warts and all aspects um, that the writers were tempted to leave out that that she said no that they need to be uh, included. So it's put her very much front and center. What where do you see her going f- from here? Do you do you see her continuing? to be a, a, a kind of a, a media personality in, in the background or do you think we're going to see her in more public roles from now on? I think she'll continue being a social crusader. She has her own production company now. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a lot more documentaries. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we if we get a book in the next five years. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if she, if she, if she runs for some sort of political role. Um, I think she's, yeah, I think that that would be a possibility for her. I don't know in what guise or, you know, in what district, but I think that could, I think that could certainly happen for her. Larry, when this scandal broke and it, and it played out, did it damage Bill Clinton's image in the US or, or was it as he coined the phrase himself, it's the economy, stupid, his presidency was was successful because of the economic performance. So therefore, is is that what weighed most uh, in people's minds in, in the States? I think there's no question that an awful lot of Americans uh, still clung to that. The, it's the economy, stupid. And certainly the Clinton presidency was a time of great uh, economic growth. Uh, and by and large, the American people were very happy with how he performed in office. I do think, however, uh, that there was a lot, there were a lot of people who were, quite frankly, disgusted by the tawdry nature uh, of this relationship, in particular, uh, the fact that Monica Lewinsky was so young uh, and the power imbalance between the two. So ultimately, I do think uh, it did cost him political, more, more to the point, it cost Al Gore uh, politically in the 2011. Election. Uh, I think that there was a sense that they'd had enough and they wanted uh, some distance away from uh, Clinton Gore. And remember, they were they were tied at the hip as president and vice president. So I do think that that 
uh, did have a certain amount of impact. There can be an interesting debate about uh, during the 2000 campaign, whether Clinton could have been employed to better effect, in particular in states with heavy African-American populations, because African-Americans regarded Bill Clinton as the first black president, uh, and they weren't too bothered uh, about what he got up to in his private life. But the last thing I'll say is, you know, there is something in the American people, there is still that almost puritanical in some quarters, uh, you know, inability to distance private life versus public persona. And I do think among those people, this did hurt Bill Clinton. What about here in Ireland? He, he made an enormous contribution to the, the peace process, sometimes took took very brave uh, and controversial decisions, but but then used them as, as leverage uh, to put to put pressure, particularly on the, the, the Republican uh, side. So do we basically deify him in Ireland because of that? Or does this affair cloud our, our judgment on him? Well, I, I certainly think his work on the Good Friday Agreement and his administration's work uh, certainly earned him the loyalty of Ireland and large segments of Irish America. There was a famous event in 1998 at the White House where Irish and Irish American people gathered to pay tribute to Clinton for his work uh, on the Good Friday Agreement. And it was when he was under serious threat, when members of his own party uh, were calling him into question, when it looked like he could go down, that is, he could be removed from office. And these people steadfastly stood by him and celebrated this extraordinary achievement. So absolutely, I think Irish people's perception uh, of Bill Clinton was forever altered by that work. In, some, in, the, in the eyes of some, he could do no wrong. Uh, I also think culturally, uh, and maybe this is strange to say for, you know, for an American point of view, when people there still think about Catholic Ireland, uh, I think a lot of people here were willing to keep separate private versus public life, uh, unlike in some quarters in the United States. With the passage of time, uh, we're, we're now in, in the Me Too era and the post-Me Too era. And this issue of that affair and, and his treatment of Monica Lewinsky does come up a lot in, in, in more recent times in, in interviews. Do you, do you think uh, it has cast a shadow of his, over his presidency now uh, more so than it did at the time? I'm not sure about how to answer that question because memories fade. And when we look back at the presidency, I do think that. What I will say is this. I am uh, not so sure that Democrats would have stood by, would now stand by a president who did something like that, no matter how ideologically compatible they might be, no matter how successful a president he might have been. I'm just not so sure that Democrats, in particular women, would would stand by a president uh, accused of those sorts of things. And again, I refer to the power imbalance, the intern barely out of college and the president of the United States. I think that would have been an awful lot for a lot of elected women to say in 2021 that they're okay with that. And Bill has spoken about this himself in a 2018 interview with with Judy Woodruff where she spoke to him about his view of the scandal. Sensitive question, President Clinton. Uh, Your relationship with Monica Lewinsky, you said your impeachment was inappropriate, it was wrong. Um, you've also said that you paid a price, that you left office $16 million or so in debt. Today, you're a That wealthy. was the least of it. I mean, the price that I paid mostly was the pain I caused to my wife and daughter and feeling terrible about the exposure she had and the way I let my staff down, the cabinet. I mean, it was awful, but I had to live with this for their I, then- Another person who was obviously intrinsically involved in this in, entire affair was, was Hillary Clinton. Do you think that her subsequent political career was, was damaged as a result of it? In particular, 
with the, the 2016 presidential campaign where she was up against Donald Trump, a guy who was no moral authority really on, on anything, and yet he was able to throw mud back at her, bring Bill Clinton accusers into the, the front row of the audience at debates and really just just kind of muddy the waters and say, well, if you think I'm bad, look at, look at, what, look at what her husband has been involved in. Well, I think the first thing to say on that one is Donald Trump's greatest political strength is that he plays the game by very different rules to anybody else. He tore up the rule book and started all over again. And the thing is, most Americans were happy uh, when it comes to Donald Trump to allow him to play by very different rules. Uh, in terms of uh, everything that happened, uh, I think that, yeah, it's inescapable that it impacted negatively on Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, uh, a very poor political candidate, not a politician, the actual, actual opposite uh, of her husband, but, but a woman who's extraordinarily able and I think would have made a very fine president. But uh, she was held to account and viewed contemptuously by an awful lot of Americans. And part of that, I think, was down to the fact that here she presented as a crusading feminist, yet stood by uh, throughout all of this. And I think it made a lot of people, women in particular, uh, made an awful lot of that swath of America uh, say, this woman is a hypocrite. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him and I honor what he's been through and what we've been through together. And you know, if that's not enough for people, then heck, don't vote for him. Uh, she's power hungry, she's willing to do what it takes. She says uh, that she's this and that, uh, but when it comes right down to it, she stood by her husband when he was accused of those awful things. Uh, I think it's inescapable that it impacted negatively on her presidential prospects. Uh, and something I, I'm afraid uh, will lead an awful lot of Americans uh, to dislike her forever. So ultimately, with, with the passage of time, do you think that that people's perception of Monica Lewinsky has gone in one direction and the Clintons in, in the other, which, you know, is, is, is probably justified in hindsight? Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's arguable. I think from I think people, even Democrats and even friends of the Clintons uh, are very careful to separate everything that's happened uh, personally versus what they achieved uh, politically and substantively. Uh, and I think that they're very careful to separate the two and always put in caveats when they're assessing their legacy for that very reason. Uh, when it comes to Monica Lewinsky and we think of the Me Too movement, uh, Monica Lewinsky, I suppose, is the first real Me Too moment. Uh, in American society. Uh, and again, uh, I think it's a mock of how we've progressed as a society uh, that I don't think Bill Clinton would have survived uh, had these uh, such allegations come to light uh, in 2021. Uh, and again, I think that the figure in this that we really need to keep our eye on is Monica Lewinsky. She's been through an awful, awful time. Imagine if that was your daughter. Uh, and I think that to her great credit, uh, she's used it to all sorts of good effect. Uh, and I'm, it seems like she's a happy, capable person. And at the end of the day, that's the most important thing beyond politics. That was Larry Donnelly and Katie Byrne. Larry's book, The Bostonian, The Life of an Irish-American Political Family, is available in all good bookshops now. I'm Fiona Sheen, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carr, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith. Archive clips courtesy of Independent.ie, TED Talks, CBS, NBC and PBS. You can listen to the Indo Daily wherever you get your podcasts.